Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mio Biskin. This week we're chatting with mastering engineer Adam Dempsey. He has decades of experience as a mastering engineer. And this month, May 2020, he celebrates 25 years as a mastering engineer and in the business, in the music biz. So he's got a lot to offer and to share in this conversation. So he's based in Melbourne at Jack the Bear's Deluxe Mastering Studio. Adam's worked with Paul Kelly, Courtney Barnett, Angie McMahon, Jeff Lang, Mayfair Kites, On Diamond, Xavier Rudd, and thousands of other artists over this time. He has mastered most of my music uh, from back in 2004, the first release I did with my band Lamplight. Uh, we took that to him and he did an amazing job. And as I mentioned in this conversation, uh, he's the reason I keep going back to him is he's extremely good at what he does, but he also really cares about music. Um, so in our conversation, we talk about how he got started in music, uh, his adventures through community radio, uh, playing in local bands, playing a number of instruments, trombone, drums, and landing his first mastering job in a cassette mastering factory, if you remember cassettes. Um, we also chat a bit about creativity, his approach to mastering. We get into a couple of metaphors, forest and the trees metaphors. Um, he also shares a couple of tips and good practices for preparing music for mastering. And also a couple of tips for if you want to get into mastering. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, which I, I'm sure you will, please give it a five star rating in all the places in the iTunes store or in Stitcher or wherever. Um, give it a nice, delightful review to help us climb the crowded ladder of the podcast glory and be heard by other music lovers who would be into this kind of stuff. That would be much appreciated. So for any of the references we make in, in the podcast about music or any other ideas, I'll provide a link in the show notes, either below this video that you're watching or if you're listening in the show notes to this episode. So without further delay, Here's my chat with Adam Dempsey. Here I am with Adam Dempsey, mastering engineer, um, legend. He's been involved in a lot of uh, the music I've made over the last 10 years or so, even longer. We've probably known each other about 15, 16 years. Yeah. Welcome. Hey, Mio. <laughs> Great to see you. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Um, cool. Thanks for chatting. Yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure. It's great. I think it's a great, um, one of the reasons I wanted to chat to you, there are lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is just the, the, the idea of mastering engineers, um, you know, kind of tucked away doing their thing. And even a lot of musicians don't really know what mastering is, what, what mastering engineers get, get up to. So this is a bit of a, a bit of a scoop. <laughs> Expose. Yeah. Emails. <laughs> emails. Is that Lots what mastering engineers do? Emails and rescheduling. Lots. <laughs> yeah. Te Tetris. <laughs> yep. Tetris with bookings and um, emails. <laughs> cool. That's it. That's Done. the main role. Done. Done. And then sometimes listening to and making music sound extra delicious. Um little bit yeah. <laughs> yeah so um well the other the other thing uh that i love about you is um your steady stream of hilarious things that you uh send to me through back channels that in the middle of my day i'm like what's this ah and then i crack up so that's that's another important role you play in the world in my world um, it's easier than uh, than <laughs> bad jokes that um <laughs> during a session go over most people's heads anyway. Right, right. Cool. So yeah. it'd be great to just, you know, start from the beginning, which is how you got into mastering, what what your journey was to get to it and and what really drew you towards, you know, the art form. And then we might get into just talking about what it what it actually is that you do between emails. Mm. Yeah. Sure. 
Um, I think I've been really privileged to have such a diverse working background. And um, I think most engineers of our age especially will know that they, they probably had a father who had records and tape machines and, and just delved into the music collection that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was... Dad built his own kit, Hi-Fi Ab. I think he still has it, and he had a great record collection, and I have some of that. Um, had some old tape machines. So I used to play with these old tape machines and make echoes and stuff and had some cheap microphones and things. So, um, you know, there was always being sent to bed with parties raging and lots of music, and I was I was born in the year of the dark, dark side of the moon, so, mm. and ELO and all that stuff. So um, there was just always music. Um, I think it was inevitable, really. I missed the football gene that other members of my family had. Yeah. Um, grandfather played footy and cousin played footy. And I was never even, I never even was told what the rules were. So <laughs> my interest just wasn't there. <laughs> um, but music, yeah. And through school, um, I had a great music program. I was studying trombone and we had the school rock band so it ended up playing harmonica and then self-taught with drums and um, kind of wish that I'd had proper tuition I didn't really have the technique with drums to be able to execute what I could hear mm. and certainly a lot of the stuff I was inspired by so it was just frustrating but I did it I, you know, I got through it and played some Ringo-ish drums in several bands and um which is not a slight on Ringo at all, of mm, course. Mm. And, um, yeah, we had the radio station. So when I was in high school, we had the local radio station was there one day in their caravan at a temporary studio. So I ended up getting involved with that out in the Yarra Valley. Um, I had live to air shows when I was 13, just volunteering, mm. just jumping in the doing radio. Yeah, right. And presenting and the radio at 13. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, it was pivotal because we had following the Ashwin their full time license with that community need of um, disaster plan and community information and community content. Um, that was at a time when the the FM spectrum was being divided up, so a lot of the commercial stations were being pushed down one end and, and mm. a lot of reallocation for community stations. So there was a bunch going for their licence at around the same time. We were one of them. Um, it was called The Voice of the Yarra Valley, VYV. Yep. I made up a hand-drawn sticker design. Yep. I, I can't believe that it was just hand-drawn on my desk <laughs> in pen something and they made stickers out of it became the logo yeah the years <laughs> when they, they changed their name yeah, the yarra valley fm but um yeah so we had test transmissions from the caravan for in lots of two weeks at a time all mm. around the place to test for their signal strength and where the transmitter should be mm. yeah, so right. i learned a lot just from volunteering and i still recommend volunteering for mm. anybody who wants there's so many avenues but you do have to jump in Mm. Uh, so yeah and we got our full-time license and i was training people and yeah. but um you know studying music um i remember when it was a relevant re revelation to me to learn how records were made and that things weren't all recorded live mm. right a, okay that multi multi-track recording existed and i had a friend who had an eight-track studio when i was playing with that with his tape machines and whatnot and yeah so yeah just just it was in a way a natural progression but in terms of mastering specifically yeah it was mm. a bit of an accident um yeah yeah as most things are i thought i wanted to do mixing i wanted to get into studio mixing yeah because it is more creative mm -hmm. um, there are a few people who can make a living out of just mixing mm. but um yeah like a it's pretty privileged, I think, because I was playing in the band, so I was doing some live sound as well, mm -hmm. and a bit of a grounding from that. Um, after high school, you know, I worked on a farm hand. I've, I've worked on a flower farm and berry farms. I've done 
worked in a bookshop on school holidays. Of um, so there's a lot of all these things brought something. You know, mm. everything. Mm. There's customer service. There's attention to detail. Yeah, deadlines. Right. Um, just you know, discipline. Mm. Um, I was putting up TV antennas on roofs. I learned about cables and how to terminate cables and. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, we had a, so it was lots yeah. of different um, job situations or pieces of learning that were not connected, well, not directly connected, but somehow all came together to give you skills to understand just electronics, electronic pathways, sound waves, music, transmission, <laughs> frequency spectrum, yeah. all that stuff came in drips and drabs. And was it a case in, in all the bands that you were in, did it, was it a case of you becoming the, you know, the tech guy because you had enough of the information to, to do the thing and then that kind of, you know, put you in that role to learn more and more? Yeah, eventually. Um, I wasn't really up with computers when that started happening. There was one band I was in, we started doing demos and recording and he had a a system that I really couldn't get my head around and that was even when, you know, email was starting up and so I I kind of left a lot of that to him. Um, Mm. But my background was pretty old school in a way, really. It was all tape machines. Yeah. Um, Even when I started mastering for cassette tapes, it was all tape machines. There was no computers involved at all. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I was pretty lucky to have that grounding. I I had some casual work. Um, running microphones and cables for the Channel 10, um, the Uncle Toby's Iron Man series and running up and down the cliffs at Portsea. And, oh, yeah, right, and right. It's casual work. Um, I'll never forget one of the most stressful days of my life. If we're going to tell little stories here. Um, <laughs> it was it was a three-day setup, and then it was live to air and then about a three-hour pack-up. You know, several hour pack up live on mm. site, <clears throat> and um, we had two audio fees. One was for the PA at the finish line of the Uncle Toby's Iron Man series, and one was for broadcast. And it was an international broadcast, mm. um, Canada and Europe, I think. And um, we thought everything was fine, and I'd help with the cabling and batteries for radio mics and all that sort of thing but we didn't have both audio feeds running and it was up to me to, I was told to go down there and dig in the sand and try and find the fault mm. while the uh, satellite link waited for me. <laughs> right. I, to this day, I don't know what went wrong. I couldn't find the fault. Someone else eventually found it right, and right. you just have to fess up. You can't hide those things. You just fess up and be honest and say, look, I was beyond me on that day. And mm. so, you know, there's, I suppose that, blessing there was communication skills mm. and listening skills and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I was doing second um, boom mic operating for Crawford's Productions. They yeah. had a studio in Hill. Yeah. That's where the Sullivan's and right, right, these ask it. classic TV shows. Yeah. yeah. So that was great. Just learning again, learning microphones and audio and, Mm. the rivalry between sound crews and lighting crews and who gets to right. run their cables up and that sort of thing. Right, right. Is it like an arm and, wrestling uh, match at the start of any job? You're going to send in your and, strongest person? Because <laughs> I was brought in as a casual, it was really quite hard to fit in. They were mm. quite mm. a team. They were really a team and they would do two weeks on location and two weeks studio and keep alternating and just churning out these made for TV um, films, really, mm. movies. Mm. Yeah, right. I was working on a TV show called The Feds, about the federal police, and mm. day one was shooting at a quarry out in the Yarra Valley, and I went to the wrong quarry, <laughs> <laughs> another quarry, and went there, and there was no mobile phones or anything. It was just following yeah. the instructions. Got. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so day one was uh, the final scene of a huge siege um, sequence involving a petrol tanker and a hostage and tanker goes over the cliff and it's a huge explosion. And so they yeah, needed right. a second boom mic operator for that. So yeah, that was my day one. For the explosion, one. just standing there like 
Huge your eyes. Yeah. Well, just, and just learning camera shots and how tight they are. And sometimes you'd have to mic from beneath rather than over the top. And mm. other times you'd have your, your arms up in the air for ages and ages. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't wear a watch. If you want to get involved in being a boom mic operator, do not wear a wristwatch. Why is that? For beeping reasons and reflections. So oh, right, right. And the both extra... of those. The extra 100 grams on your arm that you're going to hold up. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So I learned those lessons quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, but um, cool. it was all that stuff. I was on the dole for a little while. I was delivering leaflets and still playing in bands and doing yeah. a lot of boxing stuff. And then I got a job. There was actually a job advertised for a, a cassette factory in um, quality control. And I landed that job mm. probably because okay. of other stuff. And what does um, that what does that involve? Quality control at a cassette tape. So that that's that's really what mastering is. Um, it wasn't advertised as a mastering position per se, but what it was mm -hmm. was essentially sitting in a room, transferring whatever came in mm -hmm. onto a quarter inch reel tape that was formatted mm -hmm. for cassettes. Yeah, and you would sit in this in this little room and making sure that the recording level was correct mm -hmm. and listening. Listening for faults and dropouts. Right, right. You do side A and then side B or whatever side was longest first, yeah. and then flip it over and do the other side. And if anything went wrong, start again. Yeah. Um, and then box it up and label it and walk into the factory and they'd start making cassettes from that. Yeah, right, right. So, so that, that's basically one of your first mastering jobs or the idea yeah. of mastering. Sitting there listening yeah. from, from, you know, having experience of sitting in the mastering studio with you, it's, I'm kind of picturing just that attention to detail that you do have, which is quite both ninja and um, zen-like. <laughs> just like hearing all these things that, um, you know, beyond my listening capability but also just the patience involved. Is that, is that a huge part of mastering? Because I know just from doing mixing and stuff myself, I'm always I'm wanting to hop around and just like fix things really quickly. And it's only really at the end of, I don't know, feeling like I've done all that, that I'll sit back and listen to the entire thing without stopping it and whatever. But that's a huge mm. part of what you do. Mm. Maybe tell us a little bit about that process even just when, when you are listening to a track for the first time or whatever. What are you sort of doing there? <laughs> yeah, it's all feel, you isn't have... it? Because okay, you're yeah. great. You teach creativity and, and, I mean, I'm in awe of how people finish songs and write songs and how painters finish a painting and mm. how you finished and, um, you know, and that side of the, all, the, all those subjective aspects, it's eventually about letting go and does it, does it meet your vision or is it more about the process? Mm. And in mastering, there's kind of, there's two issues that I still wrestle with. I've been doing this for 25 years this month and mm. still need to be able to both, you need to make a connection to it musically, mm. but you also need distance and need to maintain mm. some separation to mm. be objective and you're only here for the first time once. Mm. Um, so you are, you're listening for the trees, for, for the forest rather than the trees. Um, mm. and you, you, you hear it and you know really quickly whether it needs this or that or what's mm. going to work in terms of the signal chain, the processing or anything. I mean, in, for cassette mastering, it was literally we had one equalizer, one compressor, and a fader. It was a modified mixing desk, mm. and it was all it was fine. And a Dolby Dolby system. It wasn't all music, by the way. Too a lot of it was was really was patience and listening, mm. marketing and spoken mm. word. Mm. Um, I don't know how many viewers might be familiar with DAT tapes, digital audio tape with little four millimeter um, digital tapes and they were very prone to glitching so that's where i picked up my skill of hearing clicks and pops mm. and things mm -hmm. we weren't allowed to leave the room that was the company policy if you were 
coming from a DAT and you missed a, a dropout or a glitch mm. and it, you couldn't risk that going onto the production line. Mm. So you, yeah, and you had to start again if you heard that. So we had several machines ready. If it wouldn't play on one, it would play on another. So another part of the job of mastering is just getting the best playback, finding the best source, mm. starting off on the right foot. Um, as the better that is, the better everything subsequent will be so yeah yeah yeah. so that's it's just interesting for me to to sort of shift away from the the sort of mixing of being creative into the minutiae of what really matters and how Mm. to how to minimize degradation at every step Mm. and um, being a bit of a perfectionist and i like finishing things and if you want to be a great mastering engineer you generally as someone who doesn't want to sit with the same project for weeks and weeks or months and months like a like a great mix engineer or a producer would do. Mm. Does that kind of shed some light on that side of things a bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That sort of the visual of the forest and the trees, sort of the the detail and the bigger picture. Because um as a you know songwriter those two modes and in all the stuff I teach about creativity, there's, you know, there's essentially these two modes you want to get into. One is that free open creative mode where you're connecting more to emotion and expressing emotion. Um, and then there's this other side, which is the, the technical aspect of, I don't know, is that, is that chord sequence? I don't know. Can, can I go from that chord sequence to this chord sequence and do voice leading and, more technical theoretical stuff and both are are really important um Mm. and it's it's um it's one of the things also why i keep coming to you with my with my music because um that part of what you do is so developed like just your aesthetic um in your musical taste and your musical aesthetic there's obviously an emotional connection to music, very deep emotional connection, as you were saying, like pretty much from the day you were born with Dark Side of the Moon playing in the background somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, so there's that emotional aspect. And then, but the technical side you've developed so deeply as well. Yeah, it's a yin and yang. Um, yeah, like I said, you've got to make a connection with it, but you've got to feel it. Mm, mm. Yeah some degree of distance so you can know what you know does this matter doesn't if you're working with a client there might be some indecision and you can you can help them through it and say well this is this is what i think and have a listen and what do you think and not everything's there's never a single way of doing anything Mm -hmm. um whether it's changing the sound slightly or the pace of the album the pace of the album is very important as well Mm -hmm. some people may they dispute that because there's, there's so many singles. It's a very mm. single oriented, but there's still albums, mm. still really important. Um, I'm just in the middle of one now where we're just tweaking some of the transitions from song to song. Mm. Um, and very, very slight moves. Mm. Um, but it's uh, maybe some people listen to music a lot, like intently, what, what you would call active listening rather than passive listening. Mm. And this is certainly the case with your tracks and the amount of time and attention put into the uh, the arrangements and the mixing. And so when you when you listen with intent, um, especially with headphones, which are if it's a good pair of, pair of headphones, they're like a microscope on on everything. Mm-hmm. Just to listen to that and know that everything you're hearing, apart from maybe some performance um, idiosyncrasies. Mm. Um, everything's there. Everything you hear is, is intentional, no matter how subtle it is. The, the positioning mm. of a sound or the timbre of it, mm. whether it's a dry sound or a wet sound, all that's intentional. And that's to me, that's just fascinating to be able to discover and rediscover that stuff. Mm. Listening, yeah. and maybe it's, it's almost like when when you're watching a film and you see everything in the frame is what matters, and there might be people standing just outside that frame. Mm. But, the lighting is and the colours that are used or the props that are in, the, in that shot, mm. all of that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's all part of the 
yeah, it's a craft. There's yeah. many layers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, let me have a look. Oh, one question I wanted to ask you was about um, related to that aesthetic that you have or the emotional connection to music. Um, just how being a musician, you know, playing a couple of instruments and being in a band situation and understanding maybe what bands are trying to do like with their music, maybe the end result of what they're doing. Um, how, how has that experience sort of influenced how you, how you go about your job in general? So that might be even how you communicate to clients or how, how you approach the mixing process itself or what you prioritise and what you, what you don't prioritise. Mm-hmm. How do I approach it? Mm, um, from having a musical background. As, as a, okay, what's, well, yeah. In the communication side of things, it, it definitely helps to be able to talk if, if people are talking in terms of um, instruments, like being able to hear the difference between a horn and a trumpet, a, a, mm. a French horn and a trumpet. I mean, I used to play trombone. I liked that mellow tone. I, I wanted to play saxophone. They didn't have any, but mm. at the time. And I, so I, I find, I mean, trumpets are very easy to, they can go sharp a little bit, and I find myself very sensitive to that, mm. to trumpets when they're sharp. And there's a few trumpet players I know who are always dead on, and that kind of, to me personally, that really stands out. Like mm. They're dead in tune. Um, so being able to hear and recognise different parts, um, being able to talk in terms of bars if they're talking editing and you know where things mm. are at, um, or time signatures, having been a drummer. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, communication, it helps. Um, there's also the, I mean, I mentioned before about the the duality of maintaining some objectivity but making a connection. There's also the one involving the, the sonics and whether you're processing something and how you do that. Mm. And it's that also comes down to usually less is more, but sometimes whatever it takes. So um, I knew pretty quickly with your stuff, it was a lot of some of the tracks were nice and dense and I knew where we could take them and not over densify them and, and mm. let, let the light shine through, if you want to put it that way. Mm. Um, and I, I did a track the other day that came in and there was almost no, no bass, no bottom end. And I had to, mm. I took it on because the client wasn't in a position to say, oh, can you tell us what you think? We're not sure about it. Mm. That If that happens, if that's the way they come to you, then that's what you do. That's part mm. of the service, obviously. But if someone comes in saying, we've taken this as far as we can and we're happy to do your thing, then that's what you're paid to do is to do your thing. Yeah. So unless, it, unless it's really not going to happen, it's if it's just not possible due to physics mm. or if it's not, you just know that it's not going to translate or it's, it's problematic or if, you, or if you really can't hear it in your mind as an engineer where it could go, mm. you, know, you need to potential mm. um otherwise as a, as a friend of mine used to say the possibilities are mindless <laughs> um and in regards to chris core i worked on a lot of albums with chris core who used to be head engineer at um, platinum studios in mm-hmm. south yarra which is sing sing south okay yeah uh, he engineered one of my favorite albums of the 80s which was the um, models out of mind out of sight yeah and we worked on a lot of stuff learned a lot of stuff from him as well he would always take a roll and delay unit with him wherever he was working, mixing, because he would use that delay as a as a pre-delay for his reverbs. So whatever reverbs he needed, he knew that that would help to delay the effect of reverb a little bit. Okay, right. So little things like that that you pick up on, not just adding reverb to something, but how to right. use it to base. Right, right, right. And so it, if you have creative decision, relatively new concept at that time because now it's become a part of yeah. you know most plugins and things kind of have this pre-delay idea yeah yeah obviously it's all yeah it's built in as a parameter mm. um for that reason it's it's useful and it works um but having that intention behind a creative decision whether it's recording mixing songwriting or or mastering 
being able to hear that you've got to hear the destination in your mind and work to that. Otherwise, mm. the, the, the possibilities are mindless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so many ways of, of accomplishing anything. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When it that makes has think- benefit. Go ahead. So, that has a benefit in mastering because you, you often need to work pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, when it comes to songwriting, it relates to something you said earlier as well, which is um, there are as many ways, there are as many ways to write a song as there are songs. That's kind of my belief that there's, yeah, there's like many it. different starting points and there's many different decision creative, unconscious creative decision points that you go off. And in a way I think of it as creative problem solving and you're making all these tiny little choices all the time. Um, and if, if the, all of the options are completely open, it does become quite overwhelming. And I've, mm. I've found in songwriting an important part of actually starting quite open. And once I get into a kernel of something, I'm really actually just sharpening, <laughs> sharpening that idea rather than yeah. branching out further. Yeah. But yeah, it can become quite, overwhelming and it's same in the in the mixing process you there are just the possibilities are mindless <laughs> yeah so this in that you know for the song for years and years tell, the song tells you what to do and i'm sure you found it helpful with with collaborating and people like marty brown and others mm-hmm. that you've worked with yeah um you know i mean you had you had danny mckenna on drums so it's just like here's the song and he'll take care of it. Mm. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm sure that for you that, that having that collaboration and everyone working to their own strengths mm. also pushes everything in the right direction. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's um, when it came to recording drums on the album, I thought about doing it myself. I have played drums in the past. I'm not an amazing drummer, mm. but... I thought, I'm pretty clear on, I I think I know what I want. But then I just sort of how much longer it's going to take me and I'm probably not going to get ultimately what I want. And so when I got in touch with Danny, a big part of that was of sort of giving him a lot of the creative space to do what he needed. Um, But also because he's good at the, that unconscious decision-making process when it comes to that that drumming world. And I guess that's mm-hmm. kind of what you get when you bring in a great collaborator is you get, they already know that world so well that they can, they can make probably, you know, better decisions, I suppose, in that world. And yeah. that's why people bring mastering stuff to you because they're <laughs> trying to figure it all out themselves or whatever is completely mind boggling. When I, I got in touch with you recently for some mastering advice of, um, or mixing advice and you sent me these <laughs> amazing detailed videos that were so dense. I had to like constantly pausing it. All right. What did he, what did he just say there? All right. It was just about the mono mixing idea, which we, oh, yeah. we can yeah. talk about, but, um, um, well, we, we had a pre-production. I remember you came in and you had some demos and some ideas. And mm. the first thing we was just listen to the whole lot and, you asked me about impressions of whether there should be horn sections or string sections and all that sort of thing. And mm. that would have been what, how long ago, two and a half, three years ago. Yeah, probably. That was after I did a, a first run of demos that I just recorded and mixed myself, I think, and then brought them to you. And I just, um, I just gave you my thoughts and we pretty much agreed on everything. You like, if I thought I could kind of hear some horns there and you said, yeah, already had that in mind. Yeah. So it was really interesting in that way to, to hear it all evolve and, and that you had, you probably were further along. Sorry. I'm just, um, right. lost the video. Here we go. Okay. Yeah. We're back. We're gone. We're back. Somebody just tried to call me. Um, yeah, you were probably further along than you might have thought at the time mm. in that creative process. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. 
maybe. But that, I mean, that's... So from, um, from a mastering point of view, it always helps. I can always tell if someone's either had collaboration or if they really know their speakers really well. Mm. You, can, you can tell how ready they are as soon as you hit play. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, related to that um, was it's the idea of, um, I mean, getting down to something a bit more practical as a, um, the common things you see that you wish you didn't see. You know, people, people what are like the common mistakes that musicians do make and projects you've worked on where, I don't know, 10 seconds into it, you know, I don't know, this mix isn't ready or um, mm-hmm. this is not ready to be mastered yet. What are some of like the key things that like jump out at you? And one is before if, you've even heard it, you know, maybe you get an email from them and you're like, oh. yeah, well, I have some tips on the website. I have some tips in my email mm. signature. Um, mm. you know, there's little notes there on how to send them through and what formats and information to include. Um, a lot of people just don't seem to see that or, or read it. Um, but it's, I, I find myself answering questions only to use. There's a lot of questions. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if you're working with an engineer, it's really your mix engineer's role to worry about that, that stuff. It's not mm. your role as the if you self-produce, if you're doing it all yourself, then sure, ask ask questions and happy to help. Um, mm. But if they're mixed issues, you really, the last person you need on board is a mastering engineer. You, you need a mix engineer. Mm. If you want, if you're aware already that your mix needs some help um, mm. and maybe there's some technical aspects to that rather than just creative aspects, um, you know, we, we as mastering engineers, we can give you our first impression um, but the more involved we get with that, the, the more impossible it is to be objective when we master it. Mm. And we're not, not paid per dial or per switch that we flick or per knob that we turn mm. to make adjustments. So mm-hmm. if something's sounding fantastic and just needs a little bit of top or a little bit of bass or, just to, you know, that's still mastering. That's, mm. you know, did an album recently for someone that's coming out mid-year and the mixes came in really hot, really loud. But he and the engineer were happy. They, they worked on it and it sounded good. And mm-hmm. so the, the last thing that I would need to do is just tell them to do it differently. And, and they just needed some, some digital adjustments, just some mm-hmm. fine-tuning here. That yeah. wasn't about changing sound at all. So there is a, it's worth trying to combat that misconception about mastering being changing things mm. it's really about doing whatever is necessary and sometimes that is helping people through the process and um if you're self-produced and you're working in isolation you know, figuratively or literally um yeah there's there's a lot of assistance you can get um there's a lot of tutorials on youtube which mm. can be helpful but ultimately um yeah if you're working or getting answers from someone who does it for a living mm. Uh, and, and like I said, as, as if it's a mix issue, and if you can get some help from someone who does mixing, yeah, that's that's going to help when it comes to mastering as well. So um, it can be a bit of a surprise when I say that you know it's the least mastering is the least most important process, as vital as it is. Mm. It's also most important. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's just about being being prepared. Think about the how you want the whole thing to be laid out in track sequence or the pace of the album mm. and if you have a mix engineer let them worry about the formats and the peak levels and all that sort of thing yeah and if they have questions they can ask but yeah. it's, it's always it's always relationships and, and you know trust it's all about trusting if mm. they send it on to someone that they trust will do the right thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah i think trust is a really really important huge issue when it comes to your, your, you know, a musician handing any part of that project over to someone else. Um, but I, I'm, I'm realizing we're, we're using the, the terms mixing and mastering a lot. And I think most people who listen to this are probably musicians or musically inclined and probably know what those things are. But I thought maybe we could quickly define them and it might also highlight more of what you do and we can maybe go into a bit more detail, but, um, 
maybe do you want to define them? Maybe in this day and age, what mixing is and yeah. Well, if if songwriting is planting the trees and mixing is maintaining the trees, pruning yeah. the trees, yeah, pruning, then in the right way, and mastering is taking an aerial view of the forest. Um, I don't know, something like that. Um, mm. Yeah, mix, what are, mixing your each all the sounds for the song, and yeah. you're mastering your playing the songs for the for the whole release. Yeah. So it's all about text. It's all about context. There's been a few EPs that I've worked on that have been fun to work on, but very challenging because I get sent one song at a time, and that that's really mm. common now. Right, um, right. I had a client yesterday contact me about an EP and said they've got one song ready and another four to come. As uh, you know, if if you're not in a rush, if you don't have a deadline for the single, mm. let's do them together. Yeah, yeah. So there's context. So it's yeah, it's all about context. And track yeah. one may not be the the signpost for the rest of them either. Mm, mm. So um, if we just ground some of the um, the mixing and mastering in very practical terms. So okay. musicians go out and often will record um, different instruments of their song separately. This is probably the most common way of doing it these days, I suppose. Um, yeah. The way we did um, my album was we, we recorded a lot of that live together, drums, bass, guitar, and some of the vocals. But then I went off, so I used my album, I suppose, as an example. And then I added all these extra tracks, overdubs, I did vocals, some extra keyboard parts. Uh, Danny McKenna came back in and did some percussion. So we have all these separate things and then mixing them is basically in very basic terms, getting a, a level balance so that every, you can hear everything pretty clearly and you can, you can pan it left and right, balance it. You can add effects and things like that. And then out of that comes a, a stereo track, one stereo track. It all gets mixed down, stirred in a pot, mixed down to a stereo track. And then that stereo track comes to you. And yep. then... So <laughs> I was being a bit... I was being pretty obtuse before with my... No, yeah, yeah. My, you're using, the, using the, the metaphor, which is which is handy. It's, it's good. But for people who... They'd be like, what? What's the tree? What's the, so, so is that the musician yeah. or is that the guitar? Yeah. Is it made of wood? So, yeah. So, yeah, this is kind yeah. of and 101. Yeah. And, you know, and would, if, would it, if a tree fell, would you hear it and all that? Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so we get all the songs that are already mixed and it's really important that you're already happy with them at that point. Because mm. if you're coming to market with a bunch of songs and you're not sure about the mix balance, mm. it usually means it's either not quite ready or you know, sometimes it's worth just bouncing out an alternate version, maybe with the vocal up a little bit or the vocal down a little bit or the mm. bass up a little bit or just, you know, and label them that way. Mm. Um, nothing's necessarily written in stone that way, but... Um, it's it's also about knowing your speakers if you've had enough time to check it on different systems when you're mixing to finesse those final balance issues of balance, especially if it's a focal point like a lead vocal. Mm. Um, there's been a few occasions where I've heard recordings that have some really nice backing vocals, but you can tell that all the backing vocals <clears throat> were recorded in the same place with the same microphone, the same distance. Mm. There's any... Um, little problems in the recording space, those things build up and they layer upon layer and it becomes very cumulative and those generally you, you know, this is a recording thing really, but you, it helps with the mixing process to be able to combine sounds that, that have differences. So for example, if you have a bunch of vocals, you, you might record them at different distances from the singer or with different microphones that suit their voice so that when you combine them, they have a natural tendency to mix, mm. compounding any, any problems with the acoustic space or, the, or the, the mic or the 
cable mm. or whatever. Mm. Right, so right. you do you do those things in mastering, and and you know the more you can just be aware of that side of thing when you're recording and mixing. Yeah. Anything that you do, I think, to to create contrasts in a mix, we might have a really reverby sound and a dry sound together, or a really wide or a really narrow sound together, or a really bright and a mm. dark sound, together, or a really staccato-y versus something really soft and gentle and smooth. Mm. They all really well, and that's I think is what people unconsciously perhaps is what people want to hear when they hear a track and they want to be able to have clarity. Um, unless you're a punk band and you're recording it all in a room and it's just all in, go for mm. it. So yeah, yeah, totally, excellent. So um, I thought we might um, uh, tap into a few stories to finish off with. So I remember you, you told me a story. Um, I won't name the, st- the album because you might tell the story, but um, of, an, of an album that came in with very disparate sounds and sources and it was a really tricky um, mastering project. What's, what's one of the most challenging mastering projects you've had to kind of undertake that you felt like you came to a good solution to? Um, challenging for me lately is, is more of a time thing. So if it's really fiddly, something that comes in that has lots of alternate versions, um, and it, so the artist's perception of how much time is involved with this versus what's really needed mm. can be night and day. Mm. Um, so I did have an album which I'll say from the beginning here that this was worth doing because of the songs and it's always comes down to the songs and that's mm. what made it. They were great. The songs are great. Um, but it was very involving um, lots of edits, little fix-ups, a um, couple of singles that had different versions that one might be longer than the other, slightly different fade-outs. One had a violin solo and, and another version of the same song had a harmonica solo. Mm. Um, and then there were very particular crossfades between the songs and sound effects between the songs. Mm. Um, and then he was doing vinyl as well, so the whole thing needed to be essentially done twice right. for digital and, and for CD and for vinyl. Uh, vinyl has its own little technical requirements um, mm-hmm. just to get easy for when it goes to the plant and gets cut, physically yep. cut. on the. Um, so yeah, it was just really, it was just a time issue, just to get make make sure we had enough time to get it done properly, and there were subjective elements to the edits and that side of things. Mm. Yeah. Um, so on a typical day, I mean, I can lock out time for that, and then you've still got other projects coming in and singles that need their mm. own and allocating time for. Yeah. So I guess when there's yes. lots of lots of variables, um, and what what's the um, the purpose of the alternate takes? Were they because they were going to be released in in different ways or in different markets, or just ones a radio edit, ones you know something else, or extra album content, or yeah, in that in that situation i'm not quite sure i think it, often it can help to have a radio edit if you're unsure you might just have a version that you might lose um eight bars of an intro or have a shorter fade out or that's something like that that might if you send it to radio and whoever's whether it's a commercial station or an independent station that gives them options uh, so, you know they'll look, they play this and see what they have time for um so a radio edit and ideally it shouldn't be much of a compromise um I mean, their way to heaven still gets played on the radio. Nobody complains. I heard Bohemian Rhapsody in the car the other day. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, and all those great songs, they all broke the mould in some way too. Mm. I think every, every great album that stands the test of time has broken a mould and people should really not be afraid of doing that. Yeah. Um, I think some of the greatest acts we've ever had have always evolved in doing that, whether it's been, um, you know, In Excess did that, U2 did that, Radiohead's done that. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, to do your own thing, keep it real, but mm. put boundaries and collaborate where you can. Um, if I had to give any other advice just quickly, it would be to just, if you can check it on a range of different speakers, mm. do that, large speakers and small speakers. And, and in mono, make sure that if you're listening on a single speaker or on a, on a phone with a single speaker that you're not losing parts that should be there in the mix. So mono, um, if we need a quick explanation, meaning that you've got the same sound coming out of both speakers so that when you hear it on one, you've still got everything there. Mm-hmm. As opposed to stereo where you have, in stereo, you have differences between left and right. And yep. some, most, most sounds will still be down that, down the middle there. But yeah, um, yeah mono compatibility is very important still mm-hmm. um, for broadcast as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one story that came to mind that I thought of before we started this chat. Mm. I wanted to mention about the. Um, so I first met you, we did an EP for Lamplight. Mm. Are we, it might have been a full album, or was it an EP? No, I think it was the, the, our first the, album. The Fitch Will Walk. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, um, and that's when I met Kirsty as well. So it was been yeah. great to. To work yeah. on that one, and then the other one, the self-titled one, came along, mm. and you worked with Miles, engineer Miles Mumford on that one. Yeah, and we we worked on that. And I, when it came out, I took it to a friend's place. He's a composer and a teacher, and I just I just had a feeling he would love it. And we just played the whole thing. I didn't tell him anything about it. I just said I think he'll love this, and we had time and played the whole thing through. And only afterwards we finished and he'd said, hmm, there's ghosts on that album. <laughs> so um, I might have told you that story, but I'm sure others might be interested because that, as you might want to talk further on, I mean, that was largely recorded in Castlemaine Jail and parts of it in solitary confinement cells. Mm. So that... Um, that certainly came through or something, mm. something that's hard to put into words came through on mm. that album. Mm. Yeah. That's amazing for someone to give that a really good listen from beginning to end and for that to be the conclusion. Cause yeah, we recorded, um, I don't know if we recorded most of it, but, I'd say about half of it we recorded in the old Castleman jail that we hired for a weekend and we, we brought everything in. Miles brought in all his gear. We set up in this main area. Luke Richardson was playing double bass in one of the prison cells. I, um, there was a piano there for some reason. So Kirsty was playing this upright piano, Indiana. She was in another room. So we got all this isolation happening Um, and then I went down to do my vocals in the solitary confinement little cage. (laughs) It was like this, this blue stone thing underground pitch black, the size of a closet. Like it was so small. And, um, yeah, I, I had, you know, between takes, um, like I've got headphones. So kind of hearing miles giving me instructions, but when he wasn't talking to me, I was only in there, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a couple of hours or less, but um, there'd just be like stuff coming out of the pitch black at my face. Like it was, it was pretty fucking terrifying. <laughs> and um, I think you can hear that in the vocal takes. Yeah. Like you can hear a yeah. bit of a quiver in my voice and it was really hard to breathe down there. It was very uh, damp and moist. So right. it was hard to take in nice deep breaths to do powerful, you know, vocals or whatever. So it was very kind of strained and I was very nerve wracked. <laughs> so yeah, that's, it's so interesting. And that worked in its favor in the end, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. A big part of that album. So it's the, the self-titled lamplight album. Mm. Um, a big con- concept of that album was how spaces affect performance, like musical performance, whether, um, um, you know, playing outdoors somewhere creates a difference in 
the your musical performance or if you're in a prison cell or where else did we do we did them in well indiana's home that she grew up in um we did some out around a campfire and the interesting story about that one if i can hijack the podcast for another minute is um um we did I don't know if you remember this song, One Piece to You, One Piece to Me, which is this love song, you know, uh, falling apart, basically. Um, and we did about five takes of it. And between each take, it was at, it was like dark and we would all just sit there and there was a fire and we'd just look at the stars. Then we'd just do another take, another take. And then when we went to listen back to them, the final take was almost half the speed of the first take. <laughs> And so just being in that environment just made us all slow down so much and become very present. Yeah. And uh, all the yeah. playing was very detailed and delicate. And so, yeah. yeah, it was an interesting concept to to work with and it definitely had an influ- influence on all of the songs on that record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would Thanks. say. And I, and I think that's happening a lot now. I'm hearing projects coming in that are just having that enforced sense of slowdown mm. imprinted on them mm. um, from whether it's performances or just the extra time in mixing. Mm. Yeah. Right. Like, I like people are, cause people aren't rushing to get their singles done for their launch gig. And yeah. I think a lot of, they're maybe not all aware of it, but it, it seems to be more time being put into things. At the moment. Mm. That's really interesting. Wonder if there's also a difference between studio time recordings versus at home, you know, bedroom recording kinds of things where there's there's time and space and as yeah. as you know, studio time can be expensive and there's just this red light flashing in the back of your mind and all this pressure like we've got to get this take. Let's not talk yeah, too so- much about it. Let's just get on to the next take. The tape's rolling. Um yeah. time's money. Let's let's get this right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's one reason why I've never liked charging by the hour, and I don't. I'd rather just put it all together and you know, let's mm. just whatever we need to do to get it done. Mm. So the last thing you want when you're finishing your project is more surprises. Um, so anything we can do to make it easier, mm. do that. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I look. There's a, there's all this talk online and forums there's always plugins and software and things are always moving but i think if you can invest time more into things mm. um and then as i'm saying that i'm thinking okay you still got that issue of how do we let go how do we know when it's done mm. so you just could you just keep going and going and going mm. but yeah just having some time when i say time i mean also time away from it so if you're working on something mm. and you're feeling and I'm sure you touch on this with your creativity workshops and just having that aspect of whether it's silence or just distance and or a regular routine of taking a walk or doing some gardening or mm. getting some fresh air or anything you can do to enforce an extra element of, of a slower pace mm. can help. When, so when I started and when a lot of engineers were making classic records, it was you were forced to make breaks with mm. tape machines had to mm. stop to rewind the tape or to mm. change the tape or to mm. clean the machine. And that largely doesn't happen. And um, you have to enforce, yeah. you have to enforce it. You have to bring yeah. on breaks and keep that headspace. Mm. Yeah, it's true. With digital recording, you can just keep it rolling and keep it looped and do a hundred thousand, you know, vocal takes in a row. And uh, yeah, after, well, in my case, after, after the, four or five, the quality of them just, <laughs> you hit this peak and then it just goes, and then you have, and then I've, you know, got to go take a break, go take a walk, do something else, come back to it fresh. Yeah. yeah. And knowing what time of day works for you. One of my favorite local singers will record themselves at home at night time. Mm. That's what works for yeah. the, for the vocal. Yeah. And they yeah. do all their vocal. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just having those breaks. Awesome. Awesome, Adam. Thanks, man. It's been really great to actually get to chat about these things in more depth. Like, you know, we, we get to hang out in the studio, but we're both kind of got our minds on a project. So it's good to, 
good to chat to you. And I, I feel like we could, I feel like we're scratching the surface. There's so much more to sort of talk yeah. about with ma- mastering yeah. and music and approaches to all of this. Um, yeah. Is there any, anywhere you want to send people so they can get in touch with you and, and whatever, ask questions or do, do work with you? Um, yeah, well, you can always find me on the, the internets. Um, yep. If anyone's overseas, they can book me through Sound Better. Um, okay. Another one, it's, it's a great resource to find mix engineers and mastering engineers or in, and musicians as well. There's a lot of musicians who have themselves set up there for session mm. work mm. on Sound Better. Yeah. Um, and so it's adamdempseymastering.com is yep. the best place to get all your info and your catalog. People should go. I was checking out your website to read up on your bio and stuff. And just, just seeing your full back catalog of all the work you've done. There's some amazing records in there. Amazing artists, lots of well-known artists who are huge right now, Courtney Barnett and Angie McMahon and um, others. Do you want to, do you want to name some? (laughs) Um, it was a privilege to work with Paul Kelly with Charlie Owen when they came and had a chat with him about his songwriting process and how he mm. still use his, use his phone to get ideas down and mm. all that sort of thing. So it was a great privilege to work with Paul. Yeah. Um, the album was called um, Death's Stateless Night. It was an mm. album of funeral dirges. Yeah, right. Tastefully done. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and Angie's awesome um, Melbourne, Melbourne band on Diamond are awesome. Mm. Everyone's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Did an album for Big Smoke that was, was mixed by Sean Everett, who's done Alabama Shakes and a bunch of mm. those guys. That whole thing was mixed in two weeks and it just has this amazing energy and mm. yeah, very big deal. It was a, a, um, a send-off for their singer, Adrian Slattery, mm. who in the making of that uh, yeah. it's just an awesome with so many influences and was just so much more epic than than i expected when that came in mm. um the orb weavers doing phenomenal mm. phenomenal it's a very creative and did their own artwork and everything yeah um and um and just again so much thanks to you and all the work that you did for your album golden moment and the the very just a lush arrangement of, um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but when I I see the album cover and you're just, just floating there, and I was like, how the hell did you do that? It's just you're floating in a forest. <laughs> um, there's a lot of that in there. A lot of these, my throat's breaking up, but a lot of um, you're getting very. Uh, it's all right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just these um, suspended sounds and lots of space in there. Mm. Um, lots of ambient sounds, lots of, um, you know, from, a, from just from a listener's point of view, it's just, it just draws you in and there's, there's this massive amount of, of light and shade in the, in the energy on that album. So all kudos to you. Thanks, man. For that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a pleasure to make it and it was a pleasure bringing it to you, you know, having that... Um, earlier session was really great because I, I referenced trust earlier. So maybe I'll sort of finish on this, but trust being so important. It's one of the reasons I worked with Marty Brown on helping to produce it and mix it. But it's also why you were, you know, my number one pick to come and work with because I trust obviously your technical ability and uh, is amazing, but trusting how you deal with music with like this, you know, cotton gloves on. It's just like, I know you have such a reverence for music and that it was going to be safe in your hands. You're going to take care of it. You weren't going to butcher it and just like get it out the door as another job. And you really have that attention to detail that I think is very rare. Like um, the patience, attention to detail and, and the skill and care. It's a pretty winning combo. So thanks for your contribution to making it sound so Deluxe, oh. shall I say? Cheers, me. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, yeah. It's cool. it's a big deal, mastering. It's you know it's the final, the final say. Um, mm. There's never a single 
doing things. So it's there's a bit, bit of pressure there sometimes to, to get it mm-hmm. right. And the, the busier you get, I'm finding lately, if, if you, when you're busy, you just don't have time to risk having to redo things, and and mm-hmm. it has to be to be you know right. Yeah, yeah. First, yeah. yeah. Measure twice, master once. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Keep building. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. Good work, Mio, and I'll speak again soon. Cool. Bye. Yes. So I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks to Adam for sharing his wealth of knowledge about mastering and all things. To learn more about Adam or to work with him, uh, visit adamdempseymastering.com. You can find all the social links to him in the show notes as well. If you like to hear his mastering work on my latest album, Golden Moment, you can head to meobiskin.com to stream it and get yourself a signed copy sent to you anywhere in the world. You can also get a free download of a few of the tracks from Golden Moment by going to meobiskin.com backslash free music as one word. And wherever you're watching or listening to this, please subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye.